It said that the greatest rescue mission of all time took 18 days and a dozen divers to go blind into a cave in northern Thailand to rescue 12 boys and their soccer coach. The, the mission was composed of expert divers from multiple nations who mapped out dark caves, navigated themselves by a rope in pitch black holes until they found these boys. Every single one of these divers, they risked their lives for the sake of rescuing those boys. And two of these Navy SEAL divers paid the ultimate price by sacrificing their very lives. They did it because, well, people mattered. And there's no greater love than the love of sacrifice. See, the essence of love really is sacrifice. When you forgive someone, you're essentially saying that you're letting them go free and you're going to absorb the guilt in their place. When you, when you forgive a debt, the debt still has to be paid. You're choosing to absorb that debt instead of making the person pay it. The thing that makes the gospel so amazing is that it's the ultimate sacrifice where the only truly innocent one goes, for, uh, goes punished so that we could go free. See, Jesus, Jesus's journey of love, that's what I call it, didn't start 33 years prior to this day, 2,000 years ago. It started way before that. It started somewhere in a cave in Bethlehem. Y'all, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her that she would bear a son, she told, the angel Gabriel said, you'll bear a son and his name will be the Christ. He'll be the Emmanuel. And if you think about what those two words mean, Emmanuel means God with us. Christ was not the dude's last name. It means the Messiah. It means the Savior. He would be that person. I've told you this before, but the entire storyline of the Bible is really a story of how God can make his home with us. The thing that makes this book so amazing and so unique is that it's, it's 66 books written by 40 different authors telling one cohesive story from the beginning of time until the end, how God will make his home with us again. Even if you don't believe this book, it's, it's absolutely tremendous. The entire world tried to stop this book from happening, and yet you hold it in your hand. People died for you to have this. The Roman Empire tried to quench it. Nothing could stop this because, well, this book, this book tells the story of love. It's the only true story ever told. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created the world. But he didn't just create the world. He created the world to be a temple for his being. The entire world was supposed to be the place where God's presence would be, a home for him and his people. But when sin entered the world, the thing that was broken was the relationship between God and man. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned and God told them, you'll surely die, well, they did die, but they didn't die an immediate physical death. What died was something deeper, a, a soul-quenching death, a, a death to the relationship, a death to the thing that they were made into, the imago Dei, the image of God. But even, even the curse that God put on Adam and Eve, as you'll see in Genesis chapter 3, it's acquainted with God clothing them. Martin Luther, the great theologian, called this the proto, meaning first, euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel. It's the very first essence of which God shows you that he will clothe you in his righteousness because he will substitute himself. That's how the rescue mission started. We see it in Abraham. We see in Abraham, we're at an old age where he shouldn't have been able to have children. God gives him a son, and he says, hey, that son that son is going to have descendants. He's going to have a family. It's going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. We saw the rescue mission for the people of Israel where God took them out of the hands of slavery by an orphan boy named Moses, and he led them to the promised land. And as he leads them there, he, he creates a place for his presence called the tabernacle. 
And in this tabernacle, we see that God, he led them by a pillar of fire at night and cloud by day because the thing that mattered was his presence. We see this when a shepherd boy named David is called by God to be the king. And if you don't know anything about shepherds, shepherds were the lowliest of the low. He was so low that whenever the prophet Samuel came to Jesse to anoint him king, his dad didn't even bring him to the party. God does this because he wants you to show that there's nobody too low for him. He uses the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. He called David to himself, and he told them that he would have a son who would build him a house to dwell in forever. We see it in the kings and the prophets, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We see it in Jonah. Jonah, the prophet who goes to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the worst people on the planet. And in the shortest sermon recorded in the Bible, we see hundreds of thousands of Ninevites come to faith because what God wants you to see is that there's nobody too far gone for him. We see it where God breaks through the silence of 400 years between the very last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. And he doesn't just speak, he puts on flesh and lives our perfect life. We see that the heir of the throne is God himself, a person who wouldn't just become the savior, but he would be Emmanuel, God with us. That baby That baby that was born was born both of humanity and deity. He was both a human and he was God. He became fully human so that he could rescue us and he became fully God so that he could be without sin. You see, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus came into this world, born of a poor family so that he could go low enough to rescue all of us found by shepherds because God wanted you to know that the gospel is for anyone, even the social outcasts. And he was raised in obscurity. Now check this out. The mission, again, it didn't start 33 years before this event. It started before the foundation of the world. God's game plan to change the world was always Jesus. Always. And the time had come. If you don't know this, I said this earlier, half of the gospel accounts focus in on the last week of Jesus' life because this rescue mission, it's the most important story ever told. We call this his passion narrative. It's a journey of love. Jesus left his home in Upper Galilee. If you get a picture of this, Israel, this small country in Upper Galilee, was this beautiful, lush, mountainous land. He leaves his home in Upper Galilee, and he begins to travel south. He trekked through the mountains of Samaria because the Bible says he had an appointment with a woman that nobody wanted. He stopped. And if you don't know anything about Samaria, it was enemy territory. It was so bad that the Jews would walk three days around it just so that they didn't have to go through the middle of it. But Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman at the well because, again, he wanted to show you that nobody is too far gone for him. He made his way to Jerusalem, the city that he wept over because the people of God had ruined the land. And on Monday of this holy week, He started at the Mount of Olives as people are throwing palm branches at his feet and trying to crown him king. But what they don't realize is that like many of us, we want the kingdom without the king. They don't realize that Jesus did come to be king, but a whole different kind of king. See, the greatest rescue mission of all time was about Jesus becoming king, but not just the king. He became the king of the world. And on Tuesday through Friday, he taught in the temple. He turned over tables. He he spoke Over and over again, he washed his disciples' feet, including Judas Iscariot, the very one who would betray him. He gave them communion, and for the first time, he showed them that the rescue mission would be accomplished by pouring out his blood and letting his body be broken. Why? Why? Because love demands sacrifice. 
Think about the Passover. The Passover, this, this scene in the book of Exodus where God, he would come and he would kill the firstborn of every family unless, unless something was sacrificed in their place and the blood of the lamb be pushed over the doorposts. It was a picture of the better sacrifice that Jesus would be the firstborn son of God who would be killed in our place and the blood would be put over the cross so that he could pass over us. Write this down, Jesus in my place is the gospel. He didn't just die for me, he died instead of me. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So on the night, on Friday night, the night that we get to, the night that he was betrayed, scholars will tell you that this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane was the greatest agony ever to take place in the history of the world. His friends, his confidants, they failed him. God turned his face away from him. There was full rejection. He was empty. He was alone. See, the punishment that hurt the worst wasn't physical punishment. You got to understand this. The cross, as bad as it was, wasn't the worst kind of punishment. The worst kind of punishment was the relationship being severed. And for the very first time in all of eternity, Jesus had faced being alone without God. He did that because, well, sin demanded a punishment that we were either going to be separated from our relationship with God or Jesus would stand in our place, would absorb the wrath of God so that he could welcome us in. Listen, because Jesus was rejected, you don't have to be. That's how this works. Because God is holy, the only way, the only way that God could ever be good, you gotta understand this, it's for God to be holy, and if God is going to be holy, he has to demand perfection. And yet, because God is so loving, he took the punishment on himself so that every time he looks at you, he can see perfection because Jesus has already paid your penalty. The Puritans used to say that God's holiness would be like tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. And because of Jesus, he became that paper so that you would never have to. Physical pain. You got to understand, physical pain is limited. But the pain of losing the love of God is eternal weight that you don't ever want to experience. Even if you're not a Christ follower, you don't understand what it's like to live outside of the presence of God because God is all present in this world. But like C.S. Lewis said, one day, if you continue to reject God, one day in his loving kindness, he is going to look at you and he's gonna give you exactly what you spent your entire life asking for. You say, God, leave me alone. God, leave me alone. God, leave me alone. And in the saddest moment of all time, God's going to say, okay. See, but you don't have to experience that because God left Jesus alone so that he would never have to leave you alone. All of this took place because there's a rescue mission for you. And this is where I want to pick up the story. If you have a Bible, grab it and meet me in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, it'll be on the screens. Here's how it starts. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. You know, the irony of this story is, is that the Pharisees just one chapter earlier won't go into the presence of Pilate because he's a Gentile and they don't want to defile himself. But the irony is, is that they're willing to murder an innocent man and yet they're not willing to do something religious. So Pilate, what does he do? He takes him, and instead of killing him, he decides to flog him. 
And if you don't know anything about flogging, it's absolutely terrible. They say that most people died by flogging. They would take this thing called a cat of nine tails and they would put broken pieces of glass and bones and different things on the end of it. And they would beat you so badly that it's recorded that most of the time your bones would come off of your body and your organs would be exposed. All of this happened because Jesus came to rescue you and he endured all of this for you. Isaiah 53, 4 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see it? Every single strike he absorbed with love. Verse 2, and the soldiers, they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robes. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. One of the things I've come to learn is that at the heart of most things is a, is a power struggle. The soldiers, they mocked Jesus. They put a crown of thorn on his head because they were trying to humiliate the king of kings. You know, the king of kings was treated like a fool, but, but Jesus did it willingly. You see, in the ultimate act of humility, Jesus traded in his heavenly crown for a crown of suffering. Scholars would tell you that this crown, get in your mind, because most of us have like a thorn bush, they would tell you this crown would not have been made with thorn bushes. It would have been most likely made with date palms. You know what the difference is? Date palms would have been several inches long and really thick, driven into the skull of your Savior as they're beating him and mocking him and putting a crown on top of his head. Y'all, Jesus endured all of that so that you wouldn't have to. See, sometimes you need to sit in the weightiness of this if you're ever going to discover the greatest love imaginable. Because I'm just telling you, I'm telling you that rules can coerce you into behavior modification, but it can never change your heart. Only love can do that. And until you sit and see what Jesus did, I'm not sure you will ever appreciate how much he loves you. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate found no guilt. And yet he still turns him over. Because at the end of the day, listen to me, doing nothing is still doing something. Y'all, we spend so much time criticizing and talking about the Pharisees that we often miss that the no answer that Pilate gave about Jesus is an answer. Historically speaking, we know that Pilate cared more about his power play in Rome than he did about doing the right thing. Because he cared so much, he knew that he had to seek the approval of the crowds, because if he lost that, he would lose his position of power. Pilate even married Caesar Augustus' daughter, who was known for being such a horrible human being that her dad didn't even like her, and her dad rejected her. Pilate knew all of this, but he cared more about having a seat at the table than he did about doing the right thing. How many people do you know like this? Maybe if you're honest, 
you're a little more like Pilate than you are a Pharisee. You don't want to actively kill Jesus, but your inaction is just as bad. So you care more about what people think about you, what culture thinks about you, than you do the king of kings. And you're in your attempt to abdicate your responsibility, you do nothing. And if you aren't careful, in your attempt to be neutral, you will actually do the very thing that you don't want to do. You'll become an enemy of God. Listen, I say this lovingly. The cross does not afford us the ability to be neutral about Jesus. It demands a verdict. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Do you know how offensive it is to say coexist or always lead to God? Because listen, if always lead to God, then the cross was unnecessary. It's actually a mockery to God to look at him and say that there's any other way because he put his son on trial for you. Verse five, Jesus came out. Wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to him, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Here's the saddest thing to me. The people who should have known better do the worst possible thing. They get so caught up in their religiosity that they stop loving the people around them. Do you get the fact that they were so religious that they couldn't even get into the presence of Pilate, and yet they were not too religious to commit murder? Not only murder, but murder by crucifixion. The worst possible way that the Roman Empire executed anybody. It was so humiliating. Y'all, do you not see their hypocrisy? Oftentimes, we do the same exact thing. We're willing to murder people in our own hearts in order to hold to our religious convictions. Don't miss this. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God and to love each other. Not to love your opinion more than the people made in the image of God. Not to trade in your Jesus for your religion. That's what we often do. Y'all, they stripped Jesus naked. They beat him near death and they made him carry his own cross up to the top of a mountain so that the world could see him. They made him wear a crown of thorns, and then they they say that Jesus, they put his knees slightly bent so that he would continue to have to push up. Little by little, he would be suffocated, naked in front of the world to see. They convicted him a murderer because because the, the Pharisees were so blinded by their own blindness that they didn't see the Savior of the world. Like Rembrandt in his famous picture, his painting of the cross, where he nails the cross in himself, what you have to understand is that the cross was not just an event in the past. It represents all of us who have placed our own nails in the hands and the feet of Jesus. Because it's not just the sins of the world. Listen, it's my sins that nailed him there. It's your sins that nailed him there. We are in danger of hanging Jesus on the cross when our pride wells up so high that we murder people in our own hearts, when our theology has to be so perfect and so superior that we look down on people who don't think the same way that we do. We're in danger of doing the same thing when we don't extend the same amount of grace that people extended to us whenever we first became Christians. Sociologists and psychologists call this the shrinking freshman syndrome. What they say is, when you're a freshman, you want to be treated like you belong, And you demand this level of respect, but by the time you become a senior, you tend to treat the freshmen the exact same way that you didn't want to because you forgot what it was like to be in their position. How many of us in the Christian life forget what it was like the moment we first believed? It wasn't easy. We're just trying to figure it out. And yet, the further along we tend to go, the more pharisaical we become. 
Like Larry Osborne says, we're all in danger of becoming accidental Pharisees. Here's what I have come to realize. The cross isn't just an event in history, but it continues to pay the price of our sins with every single nail drawn into his hands and his feet. It covers your past sins, your present sins, and all your future sins. Covers it all, y'all. Here's my question, though. Who are you in more danger of becoming? Are you in more danger of becoming like Pilate who does nothing? Well, because Jesus isn't worth your shame. You care about being liked and accepted more than following him, or are you more in danger of becoming like the Pharisees in their attempt to be zealous for God? They actually killed the Savior of the world. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, if you're, if you're a member of City Church or you come regularly, I explained to you last week in Daniel 7, that they crucified Jesus because Daniel 7 says the Son of God, the Son of God would come and save the world. He would be the one who would put the enemy to death. And so they knew, they knew that this Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who would defeat evil. And what's crazy though, is even though they knew that this was the claim, they didn't recognize that they had become the tools to fulfill the prophecy. Y'all don't find yourself in that position in your religious zeal, not realizing that you're putting yourself in a position to do the same exact thing that they did. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. (laughs) He was afraid. Don't be afraid to do the right thing. It takes more courage to do the right thing, more courageous to do the right thing than it does to not do the right thing. And listen, doing the right thing is always the best thing even if it rarely works out for your best interest. Because at the end of the day, you can put your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep knowing that God is pleased with you. Can you imagine the torment that Pilate had for the rest of his life knowing that he crucified the Savior of the world? He entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? It's an interesting question. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Here's the truth. Every bit of authority you have in this life is God-given authority. It's a stewardship. In this one statement, Jesus is showing you that no one took his life. No one took his life. He laid it down. It was love that kept his mouth shut so that he didn't have to respond and justify himself. It was love that allowed every single whip to hit his back, and it was love that held him on the cross. It was love that allowed all of this to happen. Pilate didn't hand him over. The Pharisees didn't crucify him. Jesus gave up his life, and he will take it up again. Every bit of authority is his authority. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he sought, or he brought Jesus out, and he sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. 
Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. If you underline phrases in your Bible, oh, underline that one. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Oh. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Oh, there's so much going on here. Take note of this. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. God was preparing his Passover lamb to be slain so that he could pass over the sins of the world. They all wanted a king who would occupy the throne, and yet they all missed it because they couldn't see the bigger picture. Jesus wasn't taking the throne by force. He was laying his life down by love. He won the world not by an iron fist, but by loving sacrifice. See, they took Jesus outside of the camp to crucify him so that you and I could come inside of the camp of God forever. This is a big deal. Adam and Eve started out in paradise and they ended up outside of the camp. Jesus started out outside of the camp so that you could end up in paradise. It's all a reversal. In their attempt to save the world, they gave themselves up to the rulers of the world. See, they wanted the same thing that most of you and I settle for, the kingdom without the king. Here's my question. If you could have all the benefits of heaven without God, would you still want it? And if you answer yes, then you might not get the gospel. Because the idea is not going to a place, it's being with a person. It's about God making his home with you. Jesus said that the Pharisees had added so many layers to God's law that at some point in their attempt to not break God's law, they traded in God's law for the traditions of man. Telling you, for a church like ours, that is our biggest danger. We can love our theology so much that we stop showing grace to people. You, you get this, right? I hear, it, I hear it consistently. I hear things like, the, the, you know, sometimes the music or whatever certain way that a community is or whatever. See, and eventually, if we're not careful, we'll veer off the, the road of the gospel and we'll stop wanting to reach the same people that Jesus died for so that we can be fed ourselves. Y'all, that's what the Pharisees did. That's what they cared more about their religious zeal than they did about God changing the world. And in their religious zeal, they missed God. Let's not be doing the same thing because watch this, when we do that, the same exact thing happens in the church is we drain the presence of God out of it and we just become empty buildings. What we need more than anything is God's presence and God's presence is found where Jesus is. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side. I love that. If that's a picture of the world, Jesus sat between the sins of the world in order to absorb our punishment. And Jesus between them, Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Guys, in order to understand Easter, you have to sit in Good Friday for just a bit. 
Because without the cross, there is no resurrection. Like John Calvin famously said, there's two things necessary to get the gospel. You need God and you need to get yourself. Both of those are necessary. You need to get that God endured the cross and you need to get why he did it. They took Jesus and they made him carry his own cross to his death. It said that the Romans were so awful that they would make you go the longest distance possible to the place of crucifixion because they wanted the entire world to see your shame. They stripped him naked. They beat him till he was unrecognizable. And then they put a cross on his back and made him carry it through the city so that everybody could watch Jesus go to his own agony. Y'all, he was in such bad shape that he couldn't even carry his own cross by himself. People from the crowd had to help him carry it. But like Isaac, Abraham's son, he carried his own wood for the sacrifice so that he could become your substitute. He walked up on that mountain. He put himself on it and he did all that because he knew that the price of his reward is you. You are worthy of it in his eyes. They continued to mock him. They continued to call him king of the Jews. In every language that people knew, they said that because what they really cared about was their own power. And yet in their mockery, they got part of it right. He was king of the Jews, but he was so much more than that. He was king of the world. And listen, it's the same issue today. Here's the, here at the, at the heart of the issue is this, is who's going to sit on the throne of your life? That's the real question, is who is your king? See, in every life, there's a throne and a cross. And if Jesus is going to sit on the throne, then your life has to be put on the cross. That's, that's the only way it works. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to step off your throne in order to let Jesus occupy it? They weren't, so they killed him. When we don't step off the throne of our own lives, we essentially crucify him again. So they hung Jesus between two criminals. And here's what I love. I love what Jesus says to him on this day to the one criminal in his very last dying breath, you will be with me in paradise forever. By the way, that's how we know that the moment you take your last breath, you'll go to paradise because Jesus said it. But I love the way Alistair Begg said it. Alistair Begg, he says, imagine this guy and imagine the conversation when he got to heaven. He'd get there and the angel Gabriel would be like, how in the world did you get here? Like, you've done absolutely nothing good in your life. And the, the guy, the thief on the cross would be like, I don't know. I'm as confused as you are. I'm surprised I'm here. The only reason why I'm here is because the man on the middle cross said I could be here. Y'all, if there's any other answer than that, you might not get it. How arrogant is it when we say, God, why is there only one way to heaven? If you really get the gospel, if you really get the gospel, here's the real question is, why is there any way at all? You know why? Because the man on the middle cross said I could go. Like imagine, imagine that I committed this terrible crime. I, I don't know. Imagine like I, I, I killed my neighbor. Like in the worst kind of way, the courts had convened. They found me guilty. They sentenced me to life in prison. And yet the judge looks over and says, I will allow for somebody to substitute for you. And because, you know, Joe Outlaw is a good man, um, not with a name like that, but like, contrary to the outlaw name, he, he's a good man. He says, you know what, man, I'm going to do it. So against Margaret, his wife's better wishes, he goes to the court and he says, judge, I'm going to take his place. And she's angry about it, right? Like, what are you doing? He committed a crime. He deserves to be there. 
Later on that week, Margaret overhears me having a conversation with Jim, and, and I'm like, man, and let me go. Because at the end of the day, I'm a pretty good person. I planted a church. I preached sermons. If the scales of my life are, are tipped, you know, I'm probably going to be found a good person. Imagine how Margaret would feel in that moment. She'd be like, are you out of your mind? The only reason, the only reason why you were here is because Joe went in for you. Listen, when your answer to salvation is anything other than the only reason why I'm here is that the man on the middle cross said I could be here, you slap God in the face in the same exact way. When you say, I'm a pretty good person. I've done some good things in my life. Matter of fact, all in all, like I'm pretty philanthropic. I'm a good neighbor. I treated my kids well. My wife and I are still married. And we know statistically speaking, that's an anomaly in today's world. What you just did is you've drained the power of the cross out. Because the reality is, the reality is, is the cross is the only way that you and I get to be there. Jesus took our sins and sorrows and made them his very own. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is one that you should memorize. For our sake, he, that he there is God the Father. For our sake, God the Father made him, that's Jesus. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin, perfect. To become sin for us, substitute. So that in him, you might become the righteousness of God. Oh, don't you get it? When God looks at you, he doesn't see your filth and your rags. He sees Jesus' resurrected body in your place. He sees his righteousness in you. Imputed righteousness, given to you, gift righteousness. After this, verse 28 says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A, bar, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. They held it up to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit to, to build insult into Jesus. Historians will tell you that this sponge full of sour wine was actually a disinfectant used by slaves to clean Roman soldiers after they went to the bathroom. They stuck that up to your Savior's mouth. Y'all, the entire crucifixion should bring you to your knees in gratefulness because Jesus took the full wrath of God in your place. He declared with his dying breath, to Tetelestai, it means it is finished. The greatest statement ever made, not try harder, not do more, but it is finished. The rescue mission is complete. God has made a way to be with his people again. Justice was served at the cross because Jesus was fully man. He could pay our sin debt. You realize this. I had to explain this once because I think it makes total sense, but I want you to get the picture. Because Adam was a representative for all of humanity, okay? You got that? That means that because of his sin, sin could be imputed onto every single human being that has ever lived. You are called sinner because his representation in your place was gifted to you. Why is that important? 
because that's necessary for another man to be your imputed righteousness. So Jesus, being fully man, was able to be your representative head, which means if Adam can represent you in sin, Jesus can represent you in glory. And because Jesus can represent you in glory being perfect, that means that because it was imputed to him, this can be imputed to you too. Jesus reversed the curse by taking on the punishment that Adam had given to you and he did it in your place. And the reason why he could do it is because he was fully man and he was perfect. And the reason why he was perfect is because he was fully God. See, because he was fully God, that means that he was the only truly innocent human being to ever live, which means that he became your sacrificial lamb in your place. Jesus came into the world conscious, naked, and wrapped up. I'm going to tell you this on Sunday, but there's only two times in the entire Bible to be naked, to be wrapped up and laid down is used together in this verb tense in the entire Bible. Do you know where it is? At his birth and at his death. You know why that's significant? In these cave structures where the shepherds had the sacrificial lambs, they would wrap them in swaddling cloth so that the edges of the cave would not pierce their skin so that they could be unblemished, perfect sacrifices. Jesus became your unblemished, perfect sacrifice so that he could give you his righteousness. They didn't break his legs, the scripture says, but they broke his heart so that God would never have to break yours. Now watch how it all ends. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, this is important, circle this in your Bible, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because it was the Jewish day of purification or or preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You catch it? There's a garden. Why? Because Jesus had to return to the garden that Adam and Eve were expelled from to reverse the curse. See, when Adam and Eve left the garden, God placed this thing called a cherubim in front of it so humanity could never enter back into his presence because it would be like tissue paper on the surface of the sun. But Jesus, because he was perfect, he entered back into the garden in order to make himself the ultimate sacrifice so that he could break the curse. Now watch this. He rose from the dead on Sunday, which would have been the eighth day of the week in the Jewish calendar. If you know anything, Saturday would have been the seventh day. Why? Why? Because he's initiating a new creation. He's starting over. He's recreating the world. Everything is done on purpose so that God can rescue you and make his home with you again. He came to reverse the curse. He came to do something new. The entire thing is about God coming to be with you. It's about God making a way It's about God making a way to go back, to go back, as J.R.R. Tolkien said, to make all the sad things become untrue. God with man in a garden living for all of eternity in perfection. That garden, that garden is his kingdom that we call the new heavens and the new earth where you will be in glory with him forever because Friday happened. Jesus made a way. See, Good Friday is only good because of what it accomplishes. Y'all, Jesus changes everything. Everything. You know, this thing that we, 
we do here called communion. It's actually what Jesus did on the, the week that he was crucified. He gathered his people, his 12 disciples in an upper room. They, they, they represented the church. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples represented the church. And he grabs the bread, he grabs the wine, which represents his body and his blood. And for the first time, the disciples' eyes are open as they see that the entire thing is about Jesus. And he tells them, this is my body. My body broken for you. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says, take, eat, and drink. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. By the way, this is why we say if you're not a Christian, don't take this because you're essentially confessing your faith by taking it. But here's what I want to do tonight. We're not going to sing any more songs. This is it. I want us to leave Good Friday in a posture of humility as you drink his body and blood representatively poured out for you and broken for you so that you could stand in God's presence forever. I want you to reflect. I want you to sit in this moment for just 30 seconds to a minute. I'm going to lead us in taking these. And then as soon as we take them, I'm going to pray for you. And you are sent. And I just want you to leave in that posture. All right? So take just a couple minutes and reflect on this. And we'll take it together in a second. Hear me when I say this. This is Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. His blood, not just for the forgiveness of sins for the world, but poured out for you. Take drink. Father, you are kind and you are good and you proved your love for us by the cross and your power over every grave that we have by the resurrection of the dead. Oh, what love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for you, so that you might become the righteousness of God. John 3, 16, for God, you so loved the world that you gave your only son so that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. Revelation 21, there will be a day when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. You will be our God and we will be your children living in your presence for all of eternity. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. All of this, Father, is made possible because in your loving kindness, you put on flesh, you indwelled a body. You lived our perfect life. You died our death in our place. And it's impossible to say thank you in a way that you deserve, and yet you call us your children. Heirs to the throne. So God, all we can do is give you our gratitude. by living a life devoted to you. Our worship, Romans 12, is to sacrifice our minds and our bodies to posture our lives to worship you. So God, in light of what you did, Lord Jesus, in light of what you did, Holy Spirit filling us with your presence, Jesus, you telling us that you're sending the Spirit, the Helper, and it'll be even better for you to go away because we'll have your presence, not just indwelling a human body, but indwelling our bodies. I pray that our spiritual worship would be the fruit of the Spirit, that we, we would become love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. And that we would be the light of the world, a city on a hill, with our confidence fully in you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray it all in your name. Amen.